You're listening to a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. I want to welcome you back towards a seat. We're going to be continuing in our series, Stir It Up. We'll be in 2 Peter chapter 1, heading into chapter 2. Uh, today is also the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a, uh, the church's traditional celebration of Christ's first coming. And it is also anticipating his second coming. And on this Sunday, we light a candle. And this first candle represents hope. And so during this Christmas season, this Advent season, my prayer is that you will experience Jesus in new ways within your family, but also that he would be rehearsing for you the things that he has done to to restore and renew hope in and through and around your life. I don't know if you've ever uh, been embarrassed at church before, but uh, I was embarrassed at church in a foreign country because I, I was visiting some friends in Frankfurt, Germany. And as I'm at church, it's Advent Sunday, and it's the, it's the third Sunday of Advent, which means there should be three candles lit. But as I did not grow up in a liturgical uh, church, I looked at that, and as a pastor, I see, oh no, someone didn't light all the candles. And I went up, well-meaning, and you know, I'm just gonna help, because I'm a helper. And I went up, and I took the lighter, and I go to light it, and I, there's chorus of Germans, nine. <laughs> and it's like, that was for me. Like, and someone comes up, no, it's Advent. And it's like, I got nothing. And I'm, I'm thinking I'm probably 33, 34 years old. I should know this. But just if you don't, if you're not raised with something, you don't get to see it, you may not be aware of it. And I was introduced very quickly in a very German way to Advent. It is not permitted to light the fourth candle until fourth Sunday for Jesus. And it's like three words uh, you will learn to embrace if you ever visit Germany. It's not permitted. It's not permitted. Anyway, there we go. So thank you for putting up with my voice. I wish I could say I lost it yesterday cheering for Michigan as they destroyed Ohio State. Uh, But it was gone way before that. Um, If I had had a voice at that point, it would have been gone by the fourth quarter anyway. Um, If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, my associate pastor, Cassidy uh, Pocock, is home suffering today with sickness from... It's, I think they call it Buckeitis because uh, her beloved Ohio State Buckeyes uh, lost. Actually, I think she picked up what I got even though we weren't in the same place. And we can be praying for her and for her Ohio State. <laughs> it doesn't happen often. I got to ride this train for a little while. So as we continue in this series, Stir It Up, the encouragement that we have over and over from Peter is that he wants us to keep growing in our relationship with God. He is one of the founding fathers of our faith. He's one of the people who who was there with Jesus at the beginning. And more than anything, as he gets older and as he experiences an entire generation of people who've never met Jesus face to face, they only know what they've heard from others, what's been passed down. The, the Jesus that most people are hearing about at that time are the same Jesus that we're hearing about. They never saw him. They get to hear the stories, but they didn't see him. And Peter wants them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this faith that they follow is true and real. 
And it's something to put their hope and trust in and to be passed down from generation to generation. That this faith is made for life struggles and difficulties. It's not just something we, we rehearse at holiday times to make ourselves feel better. This is something that we rehearse as a way of uh, embracing how we live and how we function and how we follow him every single day. It's something that affects every aspect of life and shapes how we think, how we interact with other people. It shapes what we do and what we don't do. It shapes our values. It shapes how we interact with people, not just those who like us, but with those who do not. Scripture tells us that there are people who follow after Jesus who will be like, it. we will smell terribly to people who don't know him at times. And we will be like this, this foul funkiness that is just like a, a stench of death. And it says, but to those who are being saved, it'll be like the, the smell of life. And sometimes you can't explain it when someone has an issue with you. And it may be that they can't explain it either. There's just something in them that does not get with what's in you. I can remember my first time I ever experienced this in seventh grade. My teacher had an issue with me. I'm a firstborn overachiever, thank you very much. And I did everything I was supposed to do and then some. And yet every time she was belittling and, and isolating and back in, it was back in the day when teachers could uh, use very harsh language with children. They weren't spanking them anymore, but she was very, very rude and, and harsh. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I'm getting bad citizenship grades. And that's like a big thing in my house. Because we might mess up on our grades, but we don't mess up on our citizenship. And I'm getting C's and C minuses. And it's like, that's not me. And then we go to find out. We talk to a lady at church. And the lady asks my mom, how's Louie doing in school? And it's like, great. It's like, well, everybody except for Mrs. So-and-so's class just absolutely loves him. And he's doing wonderfully. But in that class, he just has such a hard time. And she said, oh, is it so-and-so? And she mentions the teacher's first name. And my mom said, yeah, how did you know? She says, oh, she's my aunt. She's a witch. And she hates Christians. She can just sense them, and she, can, she hates them. And I'm off the hook. It's not me. It's Jesus. And I tell my mom that, it's not me. It's the witch. She sees Jesus in me, the smell of Jesus. And that doesn't mean you get to go off and I get to go treat her, you know, go back and show up at school. She's a witch. It's like everybody knew this anyway. We just didn't know she was like a literal witch. But there are times we will be hated because of the fact we have Jesus in our life. You know what Jesus says we're supposed to do in those times? To follow his example. When he was reviled, when he was mocked, when he was beaten, he offered no response. I have heard people say, you know what? I'm tired of listening to Christians being so weak when people speak negatively about them and they're run down. It's like sometimes there is a response for us to give, but often our response is to be silent because the accusations that are being made will fall to the ground if the testimony of our life speaks to the fact that Christ is alive inside of us. And it will be declared from the mountaintops. He will justify us. We often will not need to fight our own battles, but simply do what he tells us to. This does not mean we're doormats, 
but this also means that we are fighting a battle that is not fought against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark world. And that requires that we stand firm in God's mighty power, not in our own ability to insult people, of which I have a great repertoire. Doesn't help. Does not build the kingdom of God to tear people down. Our mouths are meant to build people up, to edify, to encourage, to exhort. That, that's free. That's not even in the notes today. That's free. Peter tells us, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness and knowledge and self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection and love. Put these things into practice, believing in Christ. Be kind and show your love in action. I had not planned on doing this, but I'm going to ask Cole, Cole, where are you? Will you come on up and help me out, buddy? I got to save this. I'm going to ask you to read using that microphone. This is the Bible. Okay. So, I haven't seen one of these before. Right. And we're going to start in verse 12, mm-hmm. and we're going to go through verse 21. Okay. So this is Second Peter verses 1, 12 through 21. It'll be up here as well. All right. Here we go. So I'll always remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside. As our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through, uh, through but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Cole. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Just park it right there. Peter's writing as an apostle or a sent one. He's an overseer. He's a pastor. He's a caretaker of people. And he takes on the key role, which is actually our role as well, of passing on to the next generation the things of God. That happens as we model it, as we teach it, and as we reinforce it by the way that we live and act. He says here, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them. If you know me for any length of time, you know I will repeat myself on the things that I believe are important. And even I'll repeat myself not even knowing I'm repeating myself. I'm 53, give me a break, that happens. 
but I will say the things I believe are important over and over and over again because I think they're worth knowing. And that if it's worth knowing, it's worth repeating and rehearsing. Just like your own personal family values, the, the, the family crest, the things that you stand for are worth rehearsing with your children. They're worth rehearsing with each other. Husbands and wives with your, with your spouse, it's worth rehearsing your marriage vows. Why? It was so long ago. Exactly. They guide your steps every single day. I doubt on your marriage wedding day, did you think for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sadness, forsaking all? It's like, of course. I always think of the for better, for richer, in joy, in happiness. Because that's where, that's where weddings are. But the promises that are made are meant to navigate through a plethora of challenges. And when your marriage is tested, when your relationships are tested, you have to have a reminded, a, a strengthened foundation to fall back on. Because if you do not, and you go by what you are feeling at the moment, it will be bad. Because your feelings will lie to you. Your feelings will head you into directions that you will regret. There are things that your feelings will try to make you do that will undermine 30 years of commitment. There's things that you could do in a moment that can undermine everything you've worked and lived for. And it's not worth it. Peter reminds us, and I remind us today, rehearse the things of Jesus in your life. Rehearse his promises. Rehearse the things that are true. Because it's when things become difficult and his voice seems so difficult to hear that we need to be reminded that it's, I know that I know that I know this is here. He tells them, yeah, I've talked to you about this a lot, but it's right for me to refresh your memory, to stir you up. As long as I live in this tent, he has been shown by God he's going to die. And I can tell you this, every single one of us will. And some of us are, can become awakened to that idea that we know it's gonna happen. Other times it comes very quickly. We don't know. But we can just purpose for this day, as for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to pass on that which he has given to me. I'm going to honor him in my life. I love that he says, I will make every effort so that after I'm gone, you still remember. I get to watch Joni on, on Sunday mornings uh, wrangling grandkids. And it's fun to me because I remember when we were wrangling our kids. And now to see the grandkids being wrangled as well. And they're hearing the same messages and same stories my kids heard. And it gives me so much joy to know each of my kids calls upon Jesus as their Savior. And that each of their kids is going to do that too. And that each of their kids is going to do that too. Because we are one generation away from extinction as Christians. If we do not pass on that which we have been given. I'm not willing to allow a three-year-old in my family to go and decide for himself what he wants to do with his life. I want my kids and my grandkids to be trained up in the way that they should go because a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old can't make their own decisions in a righteous way. If left to make their own choices, they will choose poorly. How do I know this? I have empirical evidence. I have seen it time and time again. They will not choose what is good and right. They will choose what is easy, what is tasty, what is good for them. How many times do you have to be with a six-year-old who's barfing their guts out because they ate too much candy? They say, I feel so sick. I said, I told you you'd feel sick. 
but I just wanted to eat the candy. And how much did you eat? All of it and just a little bit more. It's like, what happens next time? Are you going to do this again? Probably. No, we hopefully learn from our mistakes. But it, we're not being martinets. We're not being harsh by parenting. We're not trying to control. We're trying to shape. Hopefully that makes sense. Peter declares, everybody who's hearing this, you are our letter. You are the testimony of what Christ has done in our lives. And we want to pass this on. You know, it's funny because Peter starts to call upon the, his, his own uh, street cred. He is an eyewitness, of, uh, an eyewitness of Christ's majesty. 30 years after he was with Christ on the mountain of transfiguration, he's talking to these people in Asia. She's writing this letter. He's about 30 years removed from Christ's death and resurrection. There are an entire generation who've never met Christ personally. They've never seen him. And he's going off about, we've seen this stuff up close and personal. We saw Jesus' ministry firsthand. These are not cleverly designed myths. And the word used here is the same word for the Greek myth word. It's like, this isn't a bunch of God mythology like you guys are used to hearing with the Romans and the Greeks. This is legit stuff. This is the real deal. We saw the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power. We were eyewitnesses to that. We saw him on the mountain ascending into heaven as he said, go into the hall, all the world and make disciples. Preach the gospel to them. Teach them to obey everything that you've heard me teach and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything. We saw that. The power of a firsthand testimony is something that cannot be shaken. I want to tell you something, and this may be, you know, you, this may do nothing for you, but there are several formative things I want to mention, right? The things that shaped my life that I saw. November 23rd, 1980, my friend Tom Jones and his family invited me to go to a 49er game. This is back in the days when the 49ers were 2-14. and 14. They were bad. I had not yet picked a football team. As a kid, I'd been given a Green Bay Packers helmet, and so I was a Packer fan, kind of. The Pittsburgh Steelers were incredible in 77, 78, 79, so I was kind of a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Who didn't like Terry Bradshaw? But at that game, the 49ers were struggling, and their coach, Bill Walsh, brought in a guy off the bench named Joe Montana. And in one of the first games he played, he came in and led them from behind to, to victory. And I don't know what your affiliation is with football. I don't care or know who, who you think the greatest quarterback of all time is. I saw Joe Montana in person throw touchdown passes and lead the victory over the New York Giants changed my life. I'm serious. March 10th, 1985, I was a freshman in high school. And because I was a high achieving honors English student, I was given tickets to a concert. We weren't even supposed to be allowed to go to this, but it was when Luciano Pavarotti, the famed tenor, is singing at Lawler Events Center. And the entire... Uh, Risers behind the stage are filled with high school students, high school freshmen. 
And I got to listen to a man who sang like I would imagine an angel would sing. And I don't know what else happened that night, but I can tell you that man turned around as we're cheering him and we're doing, we don't know what bravo means, but we're bravoing him. And we're encore and we're, we're just stoked. And he turns around and he turns his back on everyone in the room and he looked at me and he looked at the other students that are there and he did a bow for us. My life was shaped and changed that night in the experience of something beautiful, opera. And I saw Pavarotti. May, last week of May, probably 2007, Joni and I were in Colorado for the Foursquare Convention. We were at the Cheesecake Factory and I look over and I see the largest man I've seen. It's Randy Johnson, pitcher for the Diamondbacks at the time. He's six foot 10 and he has a mullet that flows like the salmon of Capistrano. It's just beautiful. <laughs> and as he's walking through, he's signing autographs and he's, he tells people, I'm pitching tomorrow. Just come see me tomorrow. And so I didn't go to the meeting the next night. I bought tickets from a scalper and me and my friend Chumley, we went and sat right behind the Diamondbacks dugout. We watched Randy Johnson pitch seven shutout innings. Struck out 13 or 14 batters. And every time he came off the field, I stood up, bravo. I was, I was, it was awesome. I was worried for a while that I was getting in trouble for not going to the, the, the meeting, except my boss ended up in the seat next to me because he bought tickets from the same scalper. <laughs> That changed my life. June 7th, 2011. My friend, uh, Tim Meredith, invited me to go to a U2 concert in Oakland. I don't know where you stand on U2, but uh, I fell in love with U2 in 1985. Unforgettable Fire, The Joshua Tree in 1987. They were songs of my high school years. And you could not have convinced me that when we get to heaven, King David will not be joined by the edge playing the intro to where the streets have no name. <laughs> and I can remember that day. I saw the, I saw the edge start that intro. And I saw Paul Houston, also known as Bono, stand up and invite everybody to stand. And I'm bawling my eyes out. And it was like a moment of heaven touching earth for me. I saw it and I heard it. And no matter what else happens in my life, no one can ever take that from me because I saw it. Those are four things, four experiences that have shaped my life. And yet none of it compares to the power of God worked in people's lives. When you see captives set free, when you see the dead come to life, when you see that which was lost be found, that which was blind now able to see, that which was in the kingdom of darkness brought to the kingdom of life. And each one of us has a testimony of Jesus bringing that into our lives. And we give that testimony when we share what he's done. 
and we pass on to the next generation. We live as faithfully as we can to put it into practice what we know. I like to read stories that build my faith. People who have dedicated their lives and their deaths to Christ. If you ever want to have your faith built, you can read scripture. You can also read a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's first and second hand accounts of people who have been threatened with death if they will not recant or turn their back on Christ and they will not. And person after person after person gloriously dies giving their life for Christ gladly because he gave his life for them and they're going to live for him and they're going to die for him. I spend time on this because Peter goes into great detail We saw this, we heard this, we were there. This is not a joke. This is not something that was made up. Simply because the faith that we follow had its its crisis moment 2,000 years ago does not mean it is false. It may not be incredibly popular to be a person who's a Christian, and actually it shouldn't be. When the mainstream world embraces an idea of Jesus, you can almost for sure bet that the Jesus that they're creating is the Jesus in their own image. The Jesus who would do this. The Jesus who would do this. He w- he'd be all about love. He's about love, but he's about justice. He's about mercy. He's about sacrifice. He's about laying down his life. He's about truth. He's about setting captives free, not leaving people stuck in their captivity so they feel good about where they are. He calls them out of that. Peter rehearses, we saw them on the mountain. It's a great story. Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to go up on the mountaintop with him, and they're worshiping. And Peter, James, and John are just a couple, three dudes. They're kind of watching what's happening, and all of a sudden, there's a light from heaven. And immediately, there's Jesus, and there's Elijah, and there's Moses. And Peter and James and John are looking at this going, this is awesome. This is better than Pavarotti. This is better than Joe Montana. This is better than Randy Johnson. This is even better than where the streets have no name. This is cool. And Peter says, you know what we should do? We should put up a big tent. Let's make a house so we can just come back here and live. And Jesus is having this interaction. And Peter and James and John are just kind of left. It's, it's transformative to see kingdom of heaven touching earth. And then there's a voice from heaven. Peter refers to it as the majestic glory. And the voice says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. That was the second time they'd heard this voice. First time was at Jesus' baptism. At some point, I think they're going to listen. Because they heard it. It doesn't matter if anybody else said, you know, can you imagine Peter, James, and John going down and trying to tell the other disciples what happened? What did you guys think you saw? No, we didn't think we saw it. We saw it and we heard it. We heard the voice. And then James and John said, yeah, Peter said dumb stuff again. It's like, yeah, I did. I love that passage because it says, and Peter is trying to get him to build a tent because it says, because Peter didn't know what to say. But he never met a word he didn't like, so he just said it anyway. In addition to that, in addition to all these things, he also says we have the prophetic word. We have the prophecies. You know, there's over 350 Old Testament or First Testament prophecies that talk about Christ coming that are fulfilled in Jesus. 
It's not a myth. It's not a cleverly devised story that we follow. These are 350 prophecies telling what Jesus is coming and what's going to happen with him, specifically addressing his birth and his life and his actions. And it testifies to the reality and the truth of it. Peter says these are completely reliable. So pay attention to this because these prophecies did not originate from the prophets themselves. People just didn't go, you know what? Let's see. What would be cool? I know. Let's say that he'd be despised and rejected. Yeah, write that down. No, this is as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They wrote things down. And it's something that we can take to the bank as well. Because the people who wrote these prophecies down, they were priests, they were prophets, they were common people, they were shepherds, they were royalty, there were men, there were women. It was an entire group of people who testified multiple languages over a couple thousand years to the fact that the Messiah, the anointed one is coming. I've been sitting on this message for two weeks. One of the things that I wanted to take a brief sidetrack on is questions about prophecy. What is prophecy? What does it mean? A simple, very simple, probably oversimplified definition of the prophetic is to see, acknowledge, and respond to what God is doing or saying. And then to take steps of obedience to Christ's instruction. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not dwell with us, did not dwell upon people. The Holy Spirit would alight on people for a moment and then they'd be able to prophesy and then the Holy Spirit would leave. In Acts chapter two, it says the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all flesh. Anybody who believed in Jesus could be baptized with the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit, but then baptized by the Holy Spirit. And they would be able to prophesy. They'd be able to see and interpret dreams. They would be gifted with all sorts of spiritual giftings. And they'd be able to do miraculous signs and wonders in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit in and through them. And the, the great thing is the power of the Holy Spirit, that spirit dwells inside of believers today. So back in the old days, if you want, in the Old Testament, before the Holy Spirit was poured out, if you wanted to have a prophetic word, you'd have to go to the prophet and you'd have to wait for the prophet to tell you, what is God speaking to me? Some people still function today like that. I just want to know what God's talking to me about. Let me tell you, you can have somebody give you a confirming word, but God does not just speak to other people. He speaks to his children. You can know he will speak to you. And the voice that he speaks to you in will sound very normal. It's not going to be James Earl Jones or even Morgan Freeman. It's going to be a very normal voice that's consistent with his word. And he's going to speak to you and he's going to tell you what he thinks about you because he loves you and he wants you to know his mind for you. We do not have to go to another person to get the word of the Lord for ourselves. I believe that there can be prophetic words today. I believe that they can be, but I also believe that the primary point of direction that God will give to you will not come from another person. It will come from him to you. 
And if someone tries to tell you, thus saith the Lord for you, you better make sure you're checking it with him. Because we do not hand off the direction of our life to anybody else except for him. There may be a confirmation, but it's not the primary point of direction because God will speak to his children. His promise. In Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about different offices that he raises up to help the church grow up. Apostles and prophets and pastors and, and teachers and evangelists. What's a prophet supposed to do? A prophet today is supposed to help people learn to hear God for themselves. Not to serve in the, per, in the role of prophesying over everybody, but to help people learn how to hear God. That's what a prophet does to help the church grow up. That makes sense? When we gather, we want to hear from God. I believe any particular Sunday we're gathered, we will hear from God prophetically in conversations we have with people. We will hear from God prophetically in worship, in our communion talk, during tithes and offerings, when there's Bible reading, in the teaching afterwards in conversation, we will hear prophetically from God. We will be encouraged. We will be exhorted. We will be built up because that's what prophecy does. But it often will not sound like a, thus saith the Lord. And it won't happen in King James English usually. Sound like a machine gun going off in church. I've been in that service. I can remember standing right over here with my parents and our guest speaker's wife, Janet Allward stands up and starts speaking King James. And it's louder than, than the loudest herald trumpet you've ever heard. And I can just remember thinking, dear goodness, God, please save me. I don't know what's going on, but I, I don't understand this. When God speaks to us, it will be encouraging. It'll, it'll be like he's coming alongside and one of the reasons why we believe God speaks to us in our services like this is because everything we do is not set up to get us from one place to another. This might sound very, uh, I'm not going to worry how it sounds. There's two kind of major approaches to how you do church. We choose to go with a prophetic or oracular or to follow God's leading. Not vehicular we're not trying to use the service, the worship, the teaching, everything that's going on to get you from one place to another. We could motivate and move, but that take, does not take into consideration that not everybody needs to hear the same thing from Jesus on the same day. And that to be oracular is to say, God, we give you free reign through a, a myriad ways to speak to us today. Does that make sense? Because we're not going to try to get you from one place to another. That's his job. I promise you that. I believe that to go try and get people from one place to another is manipulative. It jerks people's emotions. Having your emotions lifted for a moment is not going to change your life. Hearing from Jesus will. Okay. Brother Cole, one more time. Thank you. Three verses. So you, you green, okay. One, two, and three here. Yeah. 
All right, here we go. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there were, will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord, who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Okay, thank you. Peter acknowledges there will be false prophets and false teachers. There will be a false gospel. One of the, thing, the primary ways that the enemy works is in perversion. That means twisting. The devil is not a creator. He's a twister. And when God delivers a message, the devil does not come and give a contrary message. He takes God's message and he twists it. And he inserts lies. In the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, God told Adam and Eve, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan shows up to Eve and says, did God really say you're not even supposed to touch it? Did God really say this? He calls into question God's words. The enemy will twist and pervert things. The goal of our enemy is to subvert truth, to introduce false teaching or heresies, to deny key elements of the identity of the sovereign Lord of Jesus Christ, to call into question his method and means of salvation. This is something that there will be a consequence for. Self-destruction will come. And the thing is, he says many people will follow these false teachings because they'll be attracted by the, 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 the brave nature of it. The word here is, is, is the sensual nature of it. The majority of the areas of twistings, it, what scripture says here is that it will come in the, in the sensual teachings or compromises of a sexual nature. In the world that we live in today, there is a threat to the gospel. And the threat to the gospel is not something that's going to overcome it. But it's attempting to take that which God has said is sin. That which God has said is this is not okay. That he says this, the way that God has established for people to live who belong to him. Not dealing with the world. Not dealing with people who don't want to be Christian. But who want to belong to Christ. That you have a husband and you have a wife. That's... It's like, well, why are we getting political? It's not political. God did not establish anything different in the Garden of Eden. He created them, male and female, he created them. And for those who want to follow after him, he dictates, this is what it looks like to be a person who follows me. He doesn't say, go speak to the rest of the world and tell them what they need to do. He says, this is what the church does. Within the church, there is a lot of temptation to compromise on sexual things. This is not new. This goes back to the beginning. The enemy will cause the way of truth to be maligned or spoken negatively about. Whether it's motivated by greed or personal gain, those who participate as false prophets, false teachers, will experience the consequences for their falseness, for their lies. James chapter 3 says, not many of you should presume to be teachers because teachers will be held more accountable for the words that they speak. This is, I weigh this. 
Sometimes people say, I just want to get up on a stage and I want to preach to people. It's like, you, do you really? Considering what we say, we will be judged more harshly according to this. I can tell you, if we hold fast to the scripture, not just in our words, but in our actions, we will not have anything to worry about. Does that make sense? Okay. What do we do with this? What stands out to you from what you've heard today? To me, God expects me to keep growing. Where have you seen God working in your own life? The things you've seen personally, that's your testimony. That's how we overcome the works of the devil is by the blood of the lamb, by the words of our testimony, by holding on to Jesus more than we hold on to our own life. How do you determine or measure what is true, especially as it relates to the gospel? How do we determine our, our, what our morals are? If our morals are based upon what I believe to be right versus what Christ, what scripture says, and there's a difference there, I believe we have to come and bring and submit ourselves to him. It's very challenging to be a person who belongs to Jesus and to think that you're gonna go through your life and not come in conflict with his belief system. To think somehow, some way, he's not gonna bring you along and you're gonna have to be led by him. And you're gonna have to say no to yourself. And you're gonna have to say, this is hard. This is a hard teaching, but I'm gonna follow the Lord. Does that make sense? If we line up 100% in our beliefs without scripture, and we think, <coughs> we think somehow, some way, that my, my belief and God's belief are the same, we are sorely mistaken. As the creator of the universe, he has final say. And I find myself rebuked on a regular basis because my thoughts and right don't always line up with him. My goal is to submit myself to him. And my encouragement would be for us to do the same. Are we open to conviction by the Holy Spirit? Not condemnation, but conviction. Do I trust that the Holy Spirit will lead me into truth and to righteousness? What do I do to test the spirits when there's a prophetic word or when somebody says something or, or declares something? Well, here's what I believe. How do I test that teaching? What do I weigh it against? I have to be able to answer that question. We're passing something down to the next generations. And in the process of passing it down, we're also living it in the here and now. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for giving me the grace to make it through this. I ask that you continue to heal everybody's bodies who are struggling with sickness and illness. I ask you, Lord, to apply to our hearts your word. May we not be people who mindlessly embrace a rhetoric, but that people who embrace your truth and pursue knowing you and allowing you to write your word on our hearts, that we would be open to be shaped and experience conviction, and that in the process we are not rejecting and casting aspersions on the rest of humanity, but we would, would love them as you love them. I pray that in the middle of our working through our salvation with fear and trembling, that we would be led into your truth and into righteousness. You convict us of sin and of judgment. I pray that you would help and you would work in our minds and shape our biases, shape our beliefs, transform our wrong ideas. May we be people who line up with you, body, soul, mind, and spirit. In Jesus' name. 
work your word into our lives, Lord. May we reflect you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's going to be prayer available right here in the back by the, by the trellis. Joni, will you come on up? I'm going to speak a blessing over us, and then Joni's going to uh, lead us in saying thank you to our life group leaders. I just want to say that the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. This has been a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. You can reach us via email at web at hillside4.org. That's W-E-B at hillside, the number 4, dot org.